Welcome to Beekeeping Today podcast presented by Bee Culture. Beekeeping Today podcast is your source for beekeeping news, information, and entertainment. I'm Jeff Ott. And I'm Kim Flatham. Hey, Jeff and Kim. Today's sponsor is Global Patties. They're a family-operated business that manufactures protein supplement patties for honeybees. It's a good time to think about honeybee nutrition. Feeding your hives protein supplement patties will ensure that they produce strong and healthy colonies by increasing brood production and overall honey flow. Now is a great time to consider what type of patty is right for your area and your honeybees. Global offers a variety of standard patties as well as custom patties to meet your needs. No matter where you are, Global is ready to serve you out of their manufacturing plants in Airdrie, Alberta, and in Butte, Montana, or from distribution depots across the continent. Visit them today at www.globalpatties.com. Hey, thanks again for that, Sherry. We really appreciate our sponsors, and you know, without their support, we would have a very difficult time bringing you this podcast on a weekly basis. With that, thanks to Bee Culture Magazine for continuing their presenting sponsorship of this podcast. Bee Culture has been the magazine for American beekeeping since 1873. Also, check out Bee Culture's Beekeeping, your first three years, a quarterly magazine for beginning beekeepers. We also want to thank Two Million Blossoms as a sponsor of this episode. Two Million Blossoms is a quarterly magazine dedicated to protecting all pollinator insects. Learn more on our Season 2, Episode 9 podcast with editor and our guest co-host, Kirsten Trainer, and from visiting www.2millionblossoms.com, and that is with the number two. Hey, everybody. Hey, Kim. How you doing? Well, you know, Jeff, I was doing okay until last night. The weather changed. Fall is here. I had to turn on the furnace last night. Oh, no. That's a, that, that, that's a hard day in my life when, <laughs> I, when it starts to get cold. That first puff of dust and dirt that comes out of the furnace the first time you turn it on, it's always, you know, you oh, know when you it know. happens. I, I, I changed all that this year. I got everything cleaned. I got, I got new furnace. I got filters. Wow. I got everything ready to go. Yeah. Um, so I won't be sneezing quite as much this year as I did last year. <laughs> But I still got to sit under the furnace. It's, yeah, well, yeah, time moves on. Yeah, it's the fall, that's for sure. And the, getting the bees ready for fall, I've been doing the, the, the mite treatments and just always, no matter what you do, how hard, or at least how hard I work to trying to keep them healthy and, and, and mite-free, that first varroa mite drop after a, like a OAV treatment is depressing. It, yes, it, it is. It is just like... And you couple that with the fact that the smell of goldenrod is gone. <laughs> so, and, and you treated with formic acid this year, this fall? You start... Formic it, Pro. Formic Pro, right. And how... Yeah. You, have you checked any drops after that? Not yet. I, I, I figured I'd wait. It's, it's supposed to be in two weeks, and I'm going to wait a week and then check and see what it looks like. Um but I can already see that it's doing some good. I mean, just look, watching the bees. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> I hope it. I know it does what it's supposed to do. I hope I did it in time. Oh, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. All right. And so, hey, starting today, uh, October fifth uh, is the the start of the fourth International Bee and Hive Monitoring Conference. We uh, we've been talking about that this in th- uh, the entire month of September. If you haven't signed up, it's still not too late. Go out there and uh, check our show notes and uh, you sign up. It's only twenty dollars, right, Kim? Yep, twenty bucks. Yeah. And they had to go to they had to go to a webinar because they got so many people they couldn't do it on Zoom. Yeah, so many participants, and they have nearly fifty uh, presenters. So it's pretty amazing the list of folks. Many of them they've been on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Speaking of looking forward, um, we have a great guest today. This is this is a treat. Well, it is. You know, I met uh, Brittany Goodrich, and I met her not too long before I retired, and we did a few articles together. She is an agriculture economist, and she has got probably the most specialized field in in her in her calling. She is studying pollination contracts. And and I met her before she moved to Davis. She's at Davis now, and she is sitting in the middle of pollination contract country. I mean, the poly, the, the almond pollination is is the biggest pollination business in the world, and she's trying to make heads or tails of what is working, what works, what doesn't. And and I think we're going to learn a lot today. I'm looking forward to the interview. I'm, this will be something totally new for me. Yeah, 
Yeah. For, well, not only new, but details and the evolution of contracts. You know, uh, a lot of people are still doing handshakes. And, and that's just, you know, there's too many things that can go wrong with a handshake that you don't want something written down. But what do you write down and how much should it be and all of these things. So it'll be good to listen to her. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's cue it up and listen to the interview right now. Hey, I want to welcome Brittany Goodrich to the Beekeeping Today podcast. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Jeff, I'll give you just a little bit of background on, on why we wanted to talk to Brittany. Uh, yeah. When I was still at Bee Culture Magazine, she had a couple of articles, and she is she's she's dealing with pollination, pollination contracts, the the efficiency of pollination, all all aspects of that, and she's kind of turned it. How do I say this? A little bit away from botany and more into mathematics. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> but but uh, today we're going to talk to her about. Um, a, a while back, she conducted a survey of uh, people who are pollinating almonds. She's working with the almond board on this, and she went to a mm-hmm. meeting out there, and she gave them a a nice long survey and. She has a story on the results of that survey, and that's what she's going to tell us today. So welcome, Brittany. It's good to see you again. Good to see you as well. And, and well, why don't you just go ahead and tell us how this contract, or contract, how this, how this survey started, and then some of the questions you asked, and then what you found out. All right. So um, this survey started as sort of, well, it was part of my dissertation research. Um, So I originally did my dissertation work here at University of California, Davis, um, and kind of got, I feel like as everyone in beekeeping or um, they kind of just get sucked in. So I went to (laughs) um, actually an economics talk uh, at one of our annual ag econ meetings and it was talking all about um, bee economics, or some some of the economists term it bee economics. Um, <laughs> and so I went to a talk, and immediately was just fascinated by pollination markets and beekeeping in general. Um, and so my dissertation advisor at the time, Rachel Goodhue, was very open to me kind of exploring um, different topics. And she was funding me um, on some, um, had some funds from the California Department of Food and Agriculture, who funded some of my dissertation work. And so she just kind of like let me go out and go out and talk with a bunch of beekeepers and almond growers um, about almond pollination. Um, And so I sort of started um, thinking about different research questions and where I was going to go with the research um, and, and of course, talked with the Almond Board of California about different ideas. And one thing that kept coming up was this idea of, you know, there's contracts that are used in almond pollination. um, And I should step back a bit and say, because whenever you say contracts to a beekeeper, they're like, I don't have a contract. It's a handshake agreement with my grower. And I've been working with him for 20 years now. So when I say contracts, I still mean those handshake agreements, but there are these agreements between beekeepers and almond growers um, and the almond board and the industry didn't have a good idea of like overall um, what what's in these contracts. What do they look like? What is the common, you know, colony strength that's being used? There was all of this anecdotal evidence um, from talking with individuals, um, but there really wasn't any concrete um, information. So that's why the Almond Board kind of got on board with me doing this contract survey um, at the 2015 Almond Conference. And so I walked in as a PhD student and surprised all of these almond growers um, by making them take a clicker survey for me at one of the presentations. So they <laughs> sat there and and watched me read all of these questions, and then they responded using those handheld clickers. Um, and then I also stayed around and did some paper surveys afterwards. So that's kind of how all of that um, kind of evolved into this contract survey Um that the the research that that's come out of it. So your PhD is in 
economics then? Yes. Agricultural okay, so economics. Yep. Agricultural economics. All right. So you are the first economics, doctor of economics in, on our podcast. So oh, it makes perfect. it a special, <laughs> a special episode for us. <laughs> and I was telling Kim earlier, this is my first podcast. So um, hey. <laughs> lots of firsts for us. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Well, Brittany, I took a look at the survey that you uh, gave these people, 22 questions, I believe, so it mm -hmm. wasn't overbearing. Um, mm -hmm. I actually I actually took it to see about how long it would take, assuming I knew a little bit about uh, being an almond grower, and I know a little bit about being an <laughs> almond grower. So it was, uh, I'm going to say, max 20 minutes to, t to do this. So, so yeah. I would guess the cooperation was probably pretty good. You didn't, you didn't get the weary at the end giving up on it, did you? No, not really. Um, the so I was only given fifteen minutes in this almond board, uh, the almond presentation. Um, so I only had fifteen minutes. So I practiced that survey, <laughs> reading it over and over. I had to be the most efficient at it, give them enough time that they could answer the questions, and then I had to move right on. Um, so it was kind of an art form by the end. So uh, there, there was that part of it, and then there was the paper survey. But anytime you're standing around at, you know, a conference, and I was in the trade show area, just standing there trying to hand out these paper surveys. Nobody likes taking surveys. Uh, it's like pulling teeth. Even I just conducted um, a survey in the fall with some cattle producers, and we paid them to do the survey. And it was still like pulling teeth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just trying to get people to do the survey is, is tough. But I think that it's important because a lot of really good information came out of it and really useful information for almond growers and beekeepers and, and brokers. Well, I know one thing, and I'm going to generalize here, but in agriculture, when I fill out a survey, I'm giving away information. Right. I'm giving away my secrets, and and I'm somewhat reluctant to do that because they work for me, and that's so I can see why you why that would that would right. Uh, now I will say that researchers have to go through uh, a lot of hoops um, to get to the survey implementation part of things, and so we do actually have through University of California they have the institutional review board. Um, what you have to go through that to kind of show that you're not going to be making anybody's information, like you're not going to be putting it out there. You're not going to identify them even when you're doing the research. Um, so there is kind of, you know, regulations to make sure that researchers are, are staying in line with what they're supposed to be doing and not sharing your information. Jeff, it's sort of like uh, the people at Hive Tracks that when you gather information, right. when people put information in the cloud, They've bent over backwards to make sure that you don't know who put it up there or where they were uh, exactly. So that, that's I think that's good. That, that would reassure me if I was filling out one of these, I, th I believe. Yeah. So what kind of questions were you asking? Um, so the main goal of the main point of interest from me, um, well, I mean, in general, we just wanted to know, you know, what, what is in these contracts? Um, are there clauses or, I mean, in, in a handshake agreement, a clause would be, you know, an almond grower and a beekeeper discussing something before almond bloom. Um, so are there things, are they talking about pesticides beforehand? Are they talking about hive theft? What happens if, you know, colonies are stolen, um, who's responsible, that sort of thing. So we wanted to find out basic information about that. The other big thing, um, which was something that uh, there, there have been a handful of economists that have actually looked at some of these pollination economics, pollination markets. Um, and so when I was going through the literature and reading sort of as you do when it, whenever you start out with research, they always touched on this idea of there being hive quality. So you have colony strength requirements in these um, pollination contracts. So a, a beekeeper that supplies, you know, an eight frame minimum average is going to get paid more than a beekeeper who supplies a six frame minimum average colony strength. And so the, the previous economists had sort of touched on this issue, um, 
but they didn't really, you know, they, they didn't really acknowledge it. And there's not a whole lot of good data on, um, you know, what are the fee differences between an eight frame contract and a six frame contract, or even no colony strength requirement at all. Um, so that's kind of the big, the big idea that I wanted to look at was um, what types of colony strength requirements are being used and how do pollination fees actually differ based on the different colony strength requirements. Um, and that, I mean, that sort of being able to find out some of that information really tells us a lot about how pollination markets can develop and, um, you know, where they're going in the future. So some of the, you know, the fancy mathematical stuff that I did in the recent um, ecological economics paper that I published basically showed that as the value of um, almond pollination or pollination services increases, and so you have, you know, almonds, the prices have increased. They're not high right now, but in recent years, as those prices have increased, um, the value of pollination services increases with it. And so then what you're going to have is these more strict contracts because, you know, if, if I'm an almond grower and I contracted for an eight frame colony, um, and my beekeeper can't deliver or delivers four frame colonies and my yield suffers because of it, those are some big losses. Um, and so what you're seeing over time and what I've been able to show um, just by showing what's in these contracts is that these colony strength requirements really matter. And over time, as you know, we're already utilizing most of the honeybee colonies in the US for almond pollination. So as it's harder to find colonies, you know, these colony strength requirements and pollination contracts are becoming going to become even more important going forward. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of a lot. I was under the assumption, and there's always a danger using that word, but if you have crop insurance, there is a requirement for colonies per acre to rent for almonds, isn't there? So this is a common misconception. Um, and it's really interesting. Actually, I did a little research on this because I kept hearing, you know, we have to use two hives per acre for crop insurance. Otherwise we won't collect, um, if, if a loss occurs. And actually now since about, I think it's 2013, they started, um, the, the crop insurance policy documents for almonds now state um, that you can actually substitute between colony strength and the hives um, per acre. And I can't remember exactly how it's phrased right now. I think it's you have to have at least um, two six frame average colonies per acre or it's equivalent. So you could have less than one uh, or less than two eight frame colonies per acre. So you just have to have the frame equivalent per acre. Um, and so you can actually substitute between colony strength and the hives per acre. Um, and yeah, so you, you can substitute. I wouldn't recommend just like all of a sudden, yeah, like if there's an almond grower listening, don't go out and like significantly decrease the number of hives per acre without talking <laughs> to your crop insurance agent, because that could lead to problems. But there is this flexibility now, and a lot of people aren't aware of the flexibility that's out there. So what, what I'm renting as a grower then is frames per acre. Okay, well, that's a that's a that's a shift in the right direction. I, I would guess, in terms of it defines better uh, the the value of the of the pollination that you're renting. So, is, well, is that a frame? When you say frames per acre, is that frame of brood frame of you know, how many what, how many bees? How many what constitutes a frame? So that's a good question. It's seventy five percent covered in um, adult bees is what's considered a frame for pollination services. Um, and that can be, and I think it's like four bees per square inch, if I remember correctly, um, if you want to get down to that. But really, they're 
the the growers are often just concerned about the num you know the number of adult bees because those are the ones that are doing the pollination and the brood probably isn't going to develop in time to pollinate the almond bloom so yeah and and that's a frame is both sides of that both sides frame. yes yeah thank okay. you well that brings up the question then uh, the number of times I've been out there um, during during almond bloom. Uh, Somebody somewhere is inspecting those colonies, mm-hmm. and and uh, does a grower hire that done? Is a grower doing it? Is he assuming that the beekeeper is is right on when he says, "Yep, there's eight frames in that box." Yeah, so that's that's another interesting thing, and that's what I um, was trying to ask about in uh, the survey that I did. So I did have a question in there about how often are you inspecting? So do you have a colony strength inspection performed every year? Um, Do you have, do you never get them performed or do you get them performed if you think colony strength is low? Um, I can't remember the exact numbers there, but it was most people, I believe it was like 67% were never having a colony strength inspection performed. So that's kind of curious when you know that there's kind of like this this standard colony strength of eight frames out there um, but some growers or a lot of growers aren't actually paying for that colony strength inspection Um, and so a lot of this stems from at least what I think is this relational nature of the industry so it's not just um, like economists talk about it. it, it's not just like a one-time thing, it's a repeated game. So you are probably, if you're a beekeeper and an almond grower, you're probably going to contract for many years um, in a row. So if I'm a beekeeper and I su- uh, supply some bees that are crappy and not good, chances are that almond grower is not going to want to contract with me in the future. And so there's sort of this reinforcing mechanism where you know that you have to maintain that relationship um, so that the colony strength inspections might not be necessary if you know um, you, you don't want to break that relationship going forward. Um, and it can be harmful to the bee colonies just to have somebody else in there. And typically it's not going to be the beekeeper that's inspecting. They pay some third party um, that's going to come in and they may not know your bees um, or whatever. At least I, I've heard from beekeepers that <laughs> sometimes the bees know you. And so it's easier to work um, with your own bees and somebody else's. Um, so, yeah, they're having these third parties come in. It can be either um, I know of like retired beekeepers that now offer these services or you have um, the county ag commissioners in every county here in California will perform a colony strength inspection for you. Um, so, yeah, you have to typically pay for these to be done. Um, it's about uh, I think I estimated about a dollar fifty to two dollars per colony um, hmm. per inspected colony. So, and you're only going to inspect around ten to twenty five percent of the colonies. So, it's a fairly low cost for the grower, um, which even it's more an, so makes it's insurance, right. basically. So, so um, okay, I got two more questions here. One is uh, the beekeeper comes in and and the inspection takes place and there's six and a half frames of bees in the colonies that are inspected. Um, okay. What happens? Well, it depends on the contract. So if, if they contracted for six frame average, then they're great. They're above what they needed, <laughs> but <laughs> mo- more than likely they're going to have contracted for an eight frame average, um, which is, pretty much the industry standard. I think over half of the the growers in my survey answered that they do an eight frame average. Um, So the, you know, it kind of just depends on the contract. Now, some growers have um, really formal contracts where they'll say, okay, you were um, basically a frame and a half below that eight frame average. So I'm going to penalize you, um, you know, based on that frame and a half in a certain amount of money um, per colony. So it's multiplying by the number of frames that uh, that it was discounted. 
Um, and then you have other ones that just say, well, you just bring in some more colonies and make up for that difference and then we'll be good. Um, so a, a majority, I think around 74, 75% of the growers in my survey um, said that they do that. They communicate with a beekeeper to bring more colonies in if they're short, um, you know, the on colony strength. You can also have some other uh, some other just type of fixed penalty um, if the colonies are too low, uh, too low in strength. Um, and then there's just a lot of like implicit penalties that you can do. Like, all right, if this beekeeper brought me crappy colonies this year, well, next year I'm not going to contract with them. Um, and you know, that's, it can be hard to find a good working relationship among, you know, beekeepers and growers, there's a lot of trust on both sides. So that becomes, you know, a pretty significant thing if you have to find a new grower and trust that he's, you know, not going to kill your bees or not going to not pay you um, and that sort of thing. What is the, uh, what's the role of brokers in all of this? So, yeah, brokers, I mean, I think brokers are playing um, probably an increasing role, and I can't remember exactly. There's some estimate of how many colonies are brokered, um, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, you definitely have these these independent brokers here um, who are, they're contracting with the beekeeper, and they're contracting with the grower, and they're basically acting as that middleman um, and placing the colonies in the almond orchards. And so the beekeepers may not even ever interact with uh, the almond grower. I mean, it kind of depends on how a specific broker does something. Um, but then that's, that's kind of, you know, the almond grower is paying sort of a premium for these brokered colonies because the broker is going to make sure that um, he or she has, you know, the colonies they cunt contracted for um, and so that they're going to have that good pollination that takes place. And the beekeeper also is kind of paying or not paying, but um, taking a little bit of a discount there because the broker is actually taking on the risk of the almond grower not paying them. So um, they're really the, the broker sort of takes a little cut in the middle, of course, um, but really bears some of the risk on both sides. So if, if all of his or her beekeepers don't, you know, if there's huge winter mortality rates, then they have to find colonies elsewhere and the grower doesn't have to worry about doing that. So brokers are, I mean, they're great. And, and I think the industry has seen um, an increase in beekeepers that are sort of acting as brokers as well. So they, you know, they'll just bring somebody else's colonies along with theirs to almond pollination. And a lot of that's because, you know, their grower is expanding and the beekeeper doesn't have enough bees to, to meet these new almond orchards. And so they're like, okay, I'm just going to find this other beekeeper, bring his bees with mine and um, call it good. So yeah, there's definitely a huge um, aspect of brokering in this industry as well. Yes, I know a few of them, and, and uh, uh, <clears throat> over the years in talking with them, I like the way you phrase it, they take risk on both sides. I hadn't thought of it that way. So yeah. it's, uh, it's they earn their money. Right, they definitely like. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the 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 relationship between between a beekeeper and a and a grower if it goes sour um for whatever reason and 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 does a beekeeper get kicked off from an orchard i mean does that ever happen so in my survey i did ask this question if you know, if the colony strength is low enough, would you actually remove their colonies and bring in somebody else's? And only about 8% of the the growers in the survey said that they would do that. Um, I don't think, I mean, I because, you know, pollination is so important. There's no almonds produced if you don't have bees and they're <laughs> 
we're already utilizing most of the U.S. honeybee colony or most of the commercial honeybee colonies in the U.S. So it's not like it's going to be easy for a grower to go out and, you know, oh, here's a beekeeper not participating. Just bring your bees because I need them now. So it's really hard for growers to find colonies at the last minute, typically. Um, So they're not going to want to just remove those colonies and replace them. But um, apparently some of the growers are are willing to do that. Um, Eight percent of them or so. (laughs) And some beekeepers are willing to wait because the price goes up, as I understand it. Right. And so that's what's interesting, too, about some of this research is really like you see, I mean, almond acreage is still going in. Um, It's still expanding. We're, you know, already utilizing most of the colonies. So, I mean, all else equal, prices are going to increase. And so what that means is that not, I'm not saying that beekeepers would do this, but they may contract for $200 a colony. And then some grower is desperate and offers $300 a colony. And even if that, you know, beekeeper had been working with his grower for 10 plus years, maybe that extra $100 a colony um, is worth breaking that, you know, relational um, relationship contract that they had together. Um, And so I think as time goes on, we've certainly saw the almond pollination market become more formal, um, more written contracts. And I think it's because there's increasing risk on both sides. So the the beekeeper, um, you know, has this incentive almost to break the the contracts that they've had for a long time because somebody's offering way more per colony because they're desperate. Um, and on the other hand, the grower really needs, you know, these colonies, otherwise he doesn't produce any almonds. And so because there's that increasing risk on both sides, it, it really lends itself to either using a broker to take on some of that risk or, um, you know, establishing these really formal written contracts. Yeah, I can see where that would work both ways. Hello, beekeepers. Your honeybees face a lot of challenges out there. Unbalanced food sources from monoculture crops, holding yards, drought, food shortages, antibiotics, pesticides, and pathogens like chalk brood. To overcome these challenges, your bees need the multiple bacteria that are in all nectars, pollens, and the environment. These bacteria aid honeybees' digestion and improve your honeybees' response and resilience to pesticides. Now you can help improve your honey colony health with a quick, easy, and safe-to-use product. Strong Microbial's Super DFM Honeybee uses naturally occurring bacteria to restore the healthy gut biome of your honeybees. Check them out today at www.strongmicrobials.com. Jeff, have you ever done any pollination? Only pumpkins. Only pumpkins, really? Only pumpkins, yeah. Did you have a contract? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not a written contract. Not Never a written verbal. contract. Yeah. Farmer Bob. Yeah, it was a Farmer handshake. Bob. All right. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and I did ask about that with the growers, whether they had handshake agreements or written contracts. And it was surprisingly used, uh, I think, about 42% um, either way. So they, they were used to about the same extent. The only issue with this survey is that it's done at, the 2015, uh, the almond conference. And what I kind of found when I was digging through the data is that, um, the, some of the, the growers overwhelmingly were much larger operations that took my survey. So we may be overstating how formal the contracts were, um, you know, for the whole industry, but I was, I was surprised to see that, that it was, you know, basically used to about the same extent on either side. Do any of these growers, um, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got almonds over here and I've got apples and peaches or whatever over there and they, they hire a beekeeper and you move them out of the almonds and when they move out of the almonds, they're big and strong and healthy because they've had 
they got a they got a box full of bitter almond honey and a whole lot of pollen and a lot of bees coming out. <laughs> so I take them over and do my apples. Uh, do many people do. Are there any people or not any? But how many people about do that? And is is that a second? I know some places that's a second crop, so you get paid for that too, right? Right. So I would say it's. I mean, it certainly happens. Um, that a grower would have some later blooming crop that they would move um, into. But the the interesting thing about this is that um, there's so many bees in California after almonds quit blooming that, I mean, beekeepers are just out competing one another to get at these other contracts just so they have somewhere to put their bees whether it's in an apple orchard or a kiwi orchard or wherever, um, so that they don't have to be feeding those colonies. So it's it's really made these other um, later blooming crops in California, the Pacific Northwest, they're really um, less lucrative for beekeepers because you know they're they're essentially just looking for a place to keep their bees until they can get, you know, back to North Dakota or Montana or whatever, which is still probably covered in snow once almonds are done blooming. Um, so yeah, it certainly happens. Um, I think a beekeeper would be really happy if their grower offered, you know, Hey, I have some cherries blooming over here. Could you bring colonies after almonds? I'm sure a beekeeper would love that. Um, but it's just, it's just not, um, as common as beekeepers would like. So the apple growers that those bees are set in are getting pollination, if not for free, at very low. So right. it, kind of, it kind of sounds like the almond growers are subsidizing pollination in the rest of those fruits. Yes, that's <laughs> uh, essentially exactly what's happening. I mean, I've talked to a couple of beekeepers and I don't, I'm not, um, I haven't, like, I'm not up to date on what pollination fees are in apples right now or anything like that. But what I've heard is that it really just covers your cost of transporting it to from the almond orchard or from the holding yard in California to the apple orchard in Washington or wherever it may be. So yeah, it's really just, <laughs> they're operating at cost um, to pollinate these other, other fruits and, the, and vegetables. On the other hand, I have, a, I have a good place to put my bees and if I'm going to split and divide, I can probably do that when I'm sitting there, uh, yeah. getting ready for to move to some other crop or, or out somewhere to make honey. And it's safe. Um, and there's food, right. there's food and it's safe. So I guess it kind of balances out in the long run. What, what other part of this survey, Brittany, haven't we covered that you found? You've, you said one thing a minute ago that one thing you found really surprising. What other surprises did you find here? That's a good question. I'm trying to think uh, if there were any surprising things. I don't, I mean, I think we found pretty much, I mean, most of the stuff that we found was expected. I guess the overwhelming amount of colonies that are contracted at an eight frame average. I mean, I had heard that anecdotally. It was interesting to see that on paper. Um, and then I guess you could actually see, so this was the first time you could actually see, um, there's hard data on these differences in, um, pollination fees offered by the different colony strength levels. So you could actually see in the survey where, um, you know, growers that, um, offered, you know, really high pollination fees for, uh, there were some growers that would offer really high pollination fees for, you know, the 10 frame plus average colony strength. And then you'd have the lowest fees would be for those growers that didn't have any minimum average colony strength or had very low um, colony strength, like four or five frames. Um, so you could actually see this this relationship between the fees and the colony strength, which, again, I'd heard anecdotally was there, but you didn't have really any hard hard evidence of that occurring. Um, so that that was something interesting. Um, Brings up the question, and I'm I'm guessing growers have a feel for. I know what my yield will be on any given average year for six frames, eight frames, and ten frames, and ten's worth it. I, you know, I don't know. I wish. I, hmm. As far as I can tell, there's not a whole lot of 
information out there on the benefits of the different colony strengths. Um, and, and we also don't really know what hive densities they were, um, stocking either. So, well, I mean, I guess I did ask, um, I asked for a sort of a range. Ideally, I would have had the actual hive density. So the actual number of hives per acre, but if we, I mean, cause you might see that these growers with the 10 frame average have fewer, they're, they're stocking less than the two hives per acre standard. Um, and you might have that the six frame average growers are maybe stocking 2.2 hives per acre or something larger so that you have the same amount of bees, um, just different hive densities. Uh, so what they but, need to look at is that frames per acre that we were talking about right, earlier. Right, frames per is acre is important. More frames per acre going to give me more almonds per right. acre. Which I've, um, I, I this is something that I've been really interested in studying just because I, I don't think there's any real hard information out there. I think, um, so Alina Nino here at UC Davis, I believe she's, possibly doing some of these studies on the relationship between frames per acre and yield. Um, I've also, I'm in the process, I've hooked up with um, uh, Denise Qualls, the uh, pollination broker who also does third-party um, inspections. And so we're trying to take some of her colony strength inspection data and sort of look at this relationship um, but that involves, you know, asking for growers yields, which they're not necessarily um, <laughs> happy to give you. Um, and so I'm hoping to do something with that at some point, because I think there really is this need for that information, especially now that it costs so much for growers to rent these colonies. I mean, you went from it being 5% of almond growers operating costs a year, uh, in, you know, the mid 1990s. And now it's up to 15 to 20% of their, their annual operating costs is pollination. Um, and so it's, it's now one of their main, you know, costs that they're thinking about. And so I'm hoping to sort of get some grower participation so that we can actually look at these, these differences to see if they can cut down on the number of colonies per acre that they're using or the number of frames that they're requiring beekeepers to have. Or if they should ramp it up. Right. I mean, I I, mean go the other way, I mean, it will cost me more in pollination fees, but if I, right. if I, ha I don't have enough trucks to haul the almonds away, you know, it might be, it might be yeah. worth my time. So, <laughs> yeah. So what would, what would you say for, based on your research, the key takeaways, both one one side being for the the beekeeper and the other side being the grower. If you could boil it all down, and I'm, boy, I saw some of that mathematics that you had in that, and that was um, <laughs> I thought I was slipped into some ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics uh, <laughs> paper, but it was actually your calculations. Right. Um, yeah, if you could boil it all down to to the beekeeper and the grower. Yeah. I mean, so one thing which it, this comes, this for the beekeeper, this comes out of, you know, this paper that I have and others is this idea of uh, colony strength um, and sort of the interaction between colony strength and winter mortality. So what I've been able to show here is that, okay, beekeepers are actually being paid according to the colony strength that they bring. Um, so higher strength colonies are getting higher pollination fees where lower strength colonies are, are getting lower fees. Um, but the interesting thing um, that I think a lot of policymakers and maybe beekeepers don't necessarily think about, probably beekeepers think about it because it directly relates to their revenues, but is this, if, if they're experiencing colony health issues during one winter, um, and they go to bring their bees to almonds and they just can't get them up to, you know, the eight frame average that their almond growers wanting. They're getting penalized oftentimes um, in the per colony fee that they're getting. So they're going to get a discounted pollination fee. Um, and on top of that, they've already lost, you know, maybe 40% of their colonies over that winter. 
Um, and so what you really see here that I think is important is these colony health issues for beekeepers really compound um, in terms of decreasing not only the quantity that they're able to rent out for almond pollination, but then also um, they're being discounted on the price aspect of things as well. And so I think that's really important because, I mean, I'm an economist, so I think um, everything should be put in terms of money because that's just how I think about things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if a beekeeper is not able to, I mean, if they're not, you know, making a, a profit large enough um, year after year, they're not going to be able to afford things like, you know, to, to keep their bees healthy and they're going to take shortcuts and, and so that really has an effect on, you know, the longevity, the sustainability of beekeeping operations here. Um, and so I think that that aspect's important for beekeepers. Uh, and then it's also important for almond growers to keep that in mind. And so I try and every time I um, sort of talk to almond growers about pollination or write an article, um, I try to remind them of this because you're not helping yourself if you're just trying to get the lowest pollination fee possible because that beekeeper, maybe you get the lowest pollination fee this year, but then that beekeeper goes out of business. And then what are you going to do next year? And so by, you know, recognizing that there is this risk in colony health and, and the prices that beekeepers receive, um, you know, as an almond grower, recognizing that and like if your beekeeper can't provide the number of colonies contracted or maybe, you know, they're at seven and a half frames instead of eight, maybe give them a break because, you know, they're oftentimes they're trying um, to make it happen. Um, and and so that's kind of what comes out of this is that there's really this underlying risk to both parties. And so trying to get that efficient risk sharing um, is, I mean, ideally, I guess, maybe not ideally, but if you had a, a completely integrated almond grower beekeeper, they'd both be sharing, you know, all of that risk from yield to colony strength and winter mortality. Um, but that's, you know, it's very hard for <laughs> an almond grower and a beekeeper to merge and, and everyone <laughs> come out on top. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so just, there's this underlying risk that, uh, I think is really important in this industry. Thanks. That is a good message. I hope people <laughs> yeah. take that one home, uh, because, uh, a lot of people don't look at it like that, uh, shared risk. So, right. Real quick, in just a last little bit of time here, and maybe we'll, ha we'll have to have you back to talk about it, but I know that you have another paper that you worked on uh, looking at the impact of the use of pesticides and fungicides and, and surfactants and all of the other sides <laughs> in uh, almond fields and poly effect on, on the beekeepers. Can you just kind of give us a highlight to that? And then yeah, yeah. Um, so I... I know that pesticides are often, you know, demonized when it comes to beekeeping. And um, I, a lot of the commercial beekeepers that I've talked to really understand that growers, in order to be, you know, profitable, an almond grower has to apply pesticides. Um, and so commercial beekeepers recognize this and, you know, they understand sometimes that it has to happen. Um, so, this was this paper um, will come out in California agriculture in um, the next couple of months sometime. But this was um, a paper a co-author Jenny Durant and I had been working on for a while, and we just wanted to look at okay, um, almonds are huge for beekeeping. You know, they're a lot of times it's half of beekeeping revenues um, or maybe more, um, and so how has the industry trended in terms of pesticide use over time? So just, you know, California has this really great pesticide use reporting database. Um, great for researchers, probably not great for growers because it annoys them, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we just took, Jenny did um, some amazing work taking the, basically trying to find us a subset of pesticides to look at. So we really only wanted to look at 
um, pesticides that are known to be be toxic or suspected to be be toxic. And so she went through all of the use, um, University of California IPM guidelines, and I believe the Pacific Northwest guidelines, and sort of gave us a subset of, of pesticides to look at. And ultimately, I mean, what we found was over time, almond growers have reduced the number of applications of pesticides per acre during almond bloom. And we specify almond bloom as being February 15th to March 15th. Now that varies from year to year a little bit, but we just went with one um, time frame. But overall, applications per acre, active ingredient per acre in almonds has trended downward over time. And that's great. Um, great for beekeepers. And the one thing that we also wanted to look at, though, was this issue of there's a lot of pesticides that um, may have sublethal impacts on bees. And you've heard, you know, anecdotally, you'll hear beekeepers talk about some of these things. And the, the problem with that is that if they're not, you know, highly toxic to bees, but they are sublethally toxic, they may not be labeled by the, the EPA or required to have a label by the EPA. So we wanted to look at some of these pesticides that um, have an EPA precautionary statement about um, whether they're toxic to bees, and then also look at ones that don't have that precautionary statement, but there's a lot of them like fungicides, um, insect growth regulators, that sort of thing that have been scientifically shown to have sublethal impacts but are not um, not labeled. And so what we found was that there was this distinct pattern. We sort of just plotted out um, basically a histogram of pesticide applications over time, and we showed where almond bloom was. And you can see that if there's a you know precautionary statement on the label, you have all of these applications right up until February 15th, and then they drastically drop off. And so you have almond growers, they're following the label, they're not applying pesticide, these bee toxic pesticides. But then you have almost the opposite uh, effect when you have these other pesticides that are not labeled with a precautionary statement. And so you have a lot of applications still taking place during bloom. And a lot of this is, um, primarily this is fungicides because growers need to apply that if it's um, raining, which a lot of times it rains during this time of year and, or during that time of year in California. And so you, what we found was that they're still applying these if they don't have precautionary statements. Um, and so that's really important. And Jenny and I have both talked with folks at EPA about this and the EPA is collecting, they do require collecting some of the sublethal information from um, pesticide manufacturers. And so they have this information, they're just confused, not maybe not confused, but they're just trying to work out a way to show that because there's so much stuff on the label already um, that it's it's sort of hard for them to incorporate, you know, another bee toxic label on there. So they're, they are working on it. We're going to have to have Brittany back when some yeah. of this becomes more clear. I'm sure that both uh, growers and beekeepers would like this information. Well, we had uh, Reed Johnson on the show back in February of 2019, and he was, he introduced or he started talking about the interaction between um the combinations of pesticides and fungicides on on the bees. And it's a really fascinating topic. And that once your your paper is available and out, uh, it'd be fun to have you if you would like to come yeah. back and talk about it. That would yeah. be fantastic. That would be that would be awesome. And I will say that, uh, and this is kind of where the Almond Board of California did put out these best management practices for when bees are in the orchards. And a lot of it stems from this. Like they found out that if you tank mix tank mix fungicides with other um, substances or whatever to save money, then that becomes synergistically toxic to bees. Um, and so those, those best management practices are, I think, really important because they recommend, you know, as of right now, this is what we know you should be doing and what you should not be doing. And um, they sort of go a little bit further than pesticide labeling does. And so Jenny and I are also looking into 
um, what, you know, what the effect of those BMPs has been. Um, that's kind of our, our next step for our ongoing research. Oh, good. That'll be, that'll be good to share. Okay. And we'll have all of all the information that you have available will, or is in the show notes, the links to your website, links to uh, the information you've talked about, and uh, listeners can uh, reach, at least start their own research there. Yes. <laughs> I did um, want to make a plug because, mm-hmm. so um, I am starting a, well, I'm hoping to have out in February a beekeeping um, almond pollination contract survey. So this was just giving out your listeners a heads up that there will be um, an online survey from me coming out at some point. I'm hoping to be able to utilize some of the um, beekeeping industries sources to sort of promote it and everything. But that's going to be really important because it's basically going to be similar to this almond grower contract survey that I did. Um, but really looking at things from the beekeepers perspective, like how, you know, do you have um, contract clauses about thefts? Are you concerned about colony thefts while you're in almonds? Um, all, all aspects of beekeeping. I know that um, beekeepers get surveyed a lot and they're not very <laughs> <laughs> um, excited about another one. I will say we did get funding. Um, so we are going to pay beekeepers for doing this survey. It's probably not very much, but um, we will be paying, but the responses are really important and they're really key to, um, you know, finding out um, any of this research that I've been doing, you know, is based on on survey data, just because there's not there's not a futures market for almond pollination. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of have to go out and, and do the hard work of collecting it. So be on the lookout for that. And I would really appreciate, you know, participation from any beekeepers. Well, let us know when it's about when it's going to be ready yes. and we'll get a hold of, we'll get the information out to our group of people. Perfect. Great. That'd be great. great. <laughs> well, Brittany Goodrich, I really appreciate you being with us today on Beekeeping Day podcast talking about, boy, I never really considered the depth of the, the economic, agri economic impact of all of this. And it's, it's amazing. I appreciate yeah. your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, thank Brittany. You. Yeah, thanks. I didn't know all the uh, contracts could be so intense. It's amazing. Well, look at the money that's riding on them. You True. Know? And and the, and the thing that the thing that got me the most was how she explained shared risk. Um, I never kind of looked at it this way. It was always I'm not going to say confrontational. But you always kind of looked at it as a buyer and a seller, and and mm-hmm. and she's looking at it a, a lot better, I think. When the grower needs to worry about the beekeeper, and the beekeeper needs to worry about the grower, and, and there's a broker in the middle someplace who's who's trying to make it all work. Um, I, I think a lot came out of this, and I'm going to be interested in reading the rest of her papers that that come out of this study. And she's doing another one first thing next year. Yeah. Well, this is a real timely, real timely podcast, and for anybody who's getting into any kind of pollination, uh, this yeah, contract really. discussion is really important. Yep, um, and 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 if it's the apple orchard down the road that's only ten acres, and you're bringing them ten colonies or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you really a while ago, Jeff, quite a while ago, I had a friend that was doing this, twenty colonies to an apple orchard down the road. And when the when the bees were sitting in the orchard, the apple orchard uh, owner passed away. Ooh. And suddenly, whose bees are these really? And the beekeeper said, "They're ours." And and the estate for the grower said, "I I don't think I thought they, I think they belong to to the guy who owned the orchard." And suddenly, this guy's bees are in that apple orchard all summer long. Oh because my! It was tied up tied up with attorneys. So. Um, yeah, it can be. It can get messy, no matter how big a scale you are or how small a scale you are. So it pays to it pays to have something written down. Absolutely, uh, whether whether it be uh, uh, between the grower and the beekeeper, or, or two beekeepers. If, if I'm giving you my bees to take down to California to to pollinate, uh, there should be some sort of agreement. Whose liability are those bees? I think that and should be covered. What happens if you don't bring them back? That's that's been a been an issue here in Ohio a while back. 
is a guy went around and collected up a whole bunch of colonies from different beekeepers, took them out west, and never came back. Oh, gosh. Well, and wh- <laughs> who's, li- who's liable if the, tree, if the it, truck spills? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, trucking is more than not, but not exclusively, uh, run by private companies. Beekeepers, I'm not going to say never. Certainly some do, but uh, there's trucking companies that specialize in hauling bees. And and they know what they're doing, and and you can be fairly safe, feel fairly safe that once you put your bees on that truck, they're going to be taken care of, and if there's a problem, that's going to be taken care of. But not everybody. Well, as they say, things happen, and <laughs> it's always best to protect yourself, both from a pollination standpoint and any of this, to make sure you have more than just a handshake, I think. Yep. One more thing, Jeff. Yeah. There's one yeah. more thing. On our webpage this time, we put two dozen uh, points to consider when writing a contract or when, when thinking about a contract. And and Brittany helped put this together. I came up with some. I worked with some beekeepers and some brokers and came up with the other ones. It's 24 really good, solid points. Go and get that list if you're even thinking about pollinating because this will point out some of the things that, that you might not think of. Yeah, it's a really good list, so thanks for including that in the show notes, Kim, and thank you, Brittany, for for all that you've done. Well, that about wraps it up for the podcast. Before we go, I want to encourage our listeners to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download and stream the show. Your vote helps other beekeepers find us quicker. Even better, write a review and let us know what you like. As always, we thank Bee Culture, the magazine for American beekeeping, for their continued support of Beekeeping Today podcast. We also want to thank our episode sponsor, Global Patties. Check them out at www.globalpatties.com. We want to thank Strong Microbials for becoming the latest supporter of the podcast. Check out their probiotic line at www.strongmicrobials.com. And finally, we want to thank you, the Beekeeping Today podcast listener, for joining us on the show. Feel free to send us questions and comments at questions at beekeepingtodaypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Anything else you want to mention, Kim? I think that wraps it up, Jeff. Been a good day. Sure has. Well, go back and enjoy your new furnace. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody.